In the Eucharist, the priest consecrates bread and wine. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, these elements become the body and blood of Christ. We know that Christ is present, body, blood, soul, and divinity in both species, the bread and the wine. Yet at the Last Supper, Jesus identifies the bread he consecrates especially with his flesh and the wine with his blood. We also recall that before Christ celebrates the Last Supper with the apostles, he performs several miracles where he multiplies loaves and fish as a way of preparing people to later accept the Eucharist. In fact, in John chapter 6, it is right after one of these miracles that Jesus launches into the bread of life discourse, his most detailed explanation of the fact that he will truly give us his flesh to eat. And he says, For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And that our faith will rise and fall upon our ability to accept this reality. But why would Jesus multiply loaves and fish as a way of preparing people for the Eucharist instead of loaves and wine? We don't have fish in the Eucharist, which I suppose is a good thing because otherwise we would have to have a refrigerator instead of a tabernacle. One reason, perhaps, is because our Lord's presence in the bread represents his sacrifice, and his presence in the wine represents his innocence. Together, these make the, his work on the cross redemptive. Christ wasn't just a sacrifice And he wasn't just perfect. He was the perfect sacrifice. When Christ was lifted high on the cross, his blood rained down upon those around him, washing them, and by extension us, of sin. It did so because Christ's blood was innocent of all corruption, unstained by original sin. Blood and water flowed from his side, a symbol of his perfect purity and the cleansing power that it would have for all Christians. So how does the fish present at the multiplication of the loaves and fish play into all this? If we go back to Noah and the flood that destroyed the world, we see that the Lord said that all flesh on the earth was corrupted by the sin of Adam and Eve. And men and women were growing even more evil with each generation. So God flooded the earth with water. Now for people and for all of the animals that walk the earth, except Noah and his entourage, who are allowed to survive in the ark, that meant destruction. But not for the creatures that lived in the sea. For them, the flood was like a big party. So we can say that the corruption that God found on earth referred to the land, but not to the sea. The sea was considered a place of primordial innocence. It's why even today people look at the sea as a place of tranquility and beauty and mystery. Under the law of the Old Testament, which kosher observant Jews follow even today, there are precise regulations for the slaughtering of animals. One of the most important aspects of kosher slaughter is that all of the blood of the animal must be carefully drained away 
because to consume blood is strictly forbidden. The reason is, is because it was a common pagan practice to consume an animal's blood. But more importantly, Jews believe that the blood, whether of an animal or of a person, contained the life force of that creature. To drink the blood of an animal was to debase oneself, to become more like that animal that the blood came from. In pagan cultures which worshipped animals, people often desired animalistic powers, so that was precisely the point. But to the Jews, it was going in the opposite direction, because men and women, and not animals, were made in the image and likeness of God. But it's interesting, if you look at it, there are not similar rules for the consuming of fish. That points to the fact that fish, being from the sea, do not fall under that same condemnation that afflicted man and the other animals that walk the land in Genesis. That's one reason why on Fridays and on Ash Wednesday, the church asks us to abstain from eating meat, but not fish. To abstain from meat symbolizes our abstention from the corruption on earth that God found in the generation of Noah. And so this was a way for Christ to show the people the true meaning of his blood sacrifice by giving them fish at the multiplication miracles, even though this would be replaced by wine at the Last Supper. Unlike animals, the blood of fish is uncorrupt, and this points to their symbolic connection to the precious blood of Christ that will be eventually offered by the Eucharistic species of wine. This is also the reason why the motifs in the New Testament of fish and fishermen so often recur. Recall that six or seven of the apostles were fishermen, and that Jesus told Peter that he would find a coin in a fish's mouth to pay the temple tax, or that Jesus grilled and ate fish with the apostles after the resurrection. Fish represents the idea of casting outside of the present corruption in order to renew God's creation. And so Christ comes to us with the good news, that he will abolish strict law in favor of charity, that he will substitute sacrament for temple sacrifice, and that he will create a new church universal instead of continuing the earthly kingdom of Israel. Today, we celebrate the Immaculate Conception of Mary. As Pope Pius IX defined the Immaculate Conception, that the Blessed Virgin Mary, from the first moment of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God, and in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of the human race, was preserved free from every stain of original sin. Mary's Immaculate Conception was the turning point in history. The moment when the foretold plan of the coming of Christ was put into concrete motion. Adam had Eve, his partner in sin and in the downfall of mankind. Christ, too, had his partner, Mary, a partner in our redemption. Just as Christ's innocent blood and his work of renewing the earth is symbolized by a fish, it is no coincidence that Our Lady has often been associated with the sea itself, the medium which nurtures and sustains fish. 
Mary is often called Stella Maris, the star of the sea, a pun on the Latin word mare for sea and Mary's name. And it's why at Marian celebrations throughout the world, especially in coastal cities, often a bishop will consecrate the sea itself to the Virgin Mary. We recall that in the account of Genesis, it says that before the land was formed, there were vast waters. God took the step of separating the dry land from the waters. And he set in motion the creation of man, who would defile himself and the world by his sin. But in God's perfect providence, he held back some of the earth to remain covered by water. And that water would wash over the earth in the flood as an act of God's justice, destroying everything. But this was only the prelude. For even in the garden, God foretold that a woman would be the instrument in overcoming the reign of the serpent who crawls on his belly on the land. So when it came time to send his only begotten son into the world, the immaculate water of Mary's womb nurtured the unborn Christ, like new creation springing forth from the unsullied waters of our primordial past. It was 1854 when Pope Pius IX defined the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. And it was a dark time for the Church. Secularism, atheism, and revolution were running amok throughout Europe. Many intellectuals believed that mankind was on the cusp of doing away with the Christian faith altogether. Yet from this simple but beautiful dogma, a great renewal in the Church arose the First Vatican Council, the maturation of the Church in the New World, the new liturgical movements, the Second Vatican Council, and the commanding pontificate of John Paul II. All of these are fruits of the faith awakened by a deeper understanding that came from the definition of the Immaculate Conception, of Mary's sinless guiding of us toward a deeper understanding of Christ. In the flood, God condemned the world with water. Through Mary, the star of the sea, Christ has flooded the world too in an act of redemption. And day by day, the face of the earth is renewed.